Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders, past and present. The hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. You'll be familiar with this week's guest from her many appearances on Australian television where she has brought her funny, fantastic self to the homes of millions of us every week. She first appeared on Gogglebox. She was then the runner-up in I'm a Celebrity, Get Get Me Out of Here. She's now hosting a podcast. She is Evie Jones. Evie. Thank you. That was a wonderful introduction. Just made that up right off the top of it my was head. Very good, very good. I'd need to write all that shit down. You've got a good memory. Came runner up. I'm really glad that you popped that in. <laughs> Look, second, second, the best. Who remembers winners of anything? No, exactly, know? exactly. The runner up is it, and I've had the career since. Richard hasn't. Poor thing. We were first introduced to you, kind of nationwide on Gogglebox, where you're you're just. I remember watching you and because obviously you were with one of your best friends, Angie Kent, partnered there, and I remember just thinking that you two were just so charming together. But I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily be aware that you've had a long career in media yeah. prior to that. Yeah. You weren't just kind of plucked out of obscurity. Well, I knew um, the behind-the-scenes um, producers and editors of Endemon that when they got um, told about the new concept show coming, you know, I would often be asked by my friends who worked um, behind the scenes, you know, you should audition for this. You should go on Big Brother. You should do, you know, I, we could fast track you through everything. And I would say no to absolutely everything. Um, and I've worked as a publicist and I'd worked as a, um, a, a well, professional singer, I say, because I got paid. But, you know, and I'd done a lot of acting and things like that and I was trained in acting. Um, so I definitely had this long career of not really doing successful things but always there always behind the scenes so when Gogglebox came along I actually only said yes to it because I thought this is this is going to be a bit of fun finally to get in front of the camera and it's not going to take off so 
it'll be something fun to show my my niece and nephews, you know, down the track, their kids, that kind of thing. No idea that it was going to do what it what it did and what it's still doing, um, which I'm really glad that it did. And it's only done really positive things for me. But yeah, so I've I've I'd always kind of been around, but just in the background like a creep. Well, it's the perfect concept for a reality television show as well. I mean, I as you know, I gag for reality TV. I love it. Um, I'm a huge fan of Survivor, not so much Big Brother or, you know, any of the kind of just watch people sit around and do things kind of shows. But uh, there's a difference between loving to watch it and thinking I want to go and spend 50 days on a beach doing challenges that will severely stress me out. (laughs) Um, You know, sitting around... I could do that. Yes. Yeah. Gogglebox is is the best concept ever. And not only is it um, reality, it's more observational documentary, which makes it very different in the um, media's eyes, like the and other networks. Like they just there's a, a real snobbery with reality TV, obviously. Whereas in Gogglebox, before the first, I think they've won four um, logies, but the first two logies they won it was in the factual um category Mm. they weren't even over into the reality not reality the entertainment you know so um we were always quite wore that with with pride with if people would call us reality people we'd be like no obdoc (laughs) like there's a difference one of the great things about i mean i know you've probably talked about gogglebox so many times over the years but uh, never with me. Yeah. One of the great things about Gogglebox, particularly in terms of quote unquote reality TV or Obdoc, as you say, is that unlike quote unquote reality television, there's actually a hugely diverse cast of people. There on is. It. That that's the beauty, I think, that um someone said not someone, a lot of people have said that Gogglebox is a um visual Twitter because you've got just so many people tweeting and giving their opinions from everywhere, from every walk. Um, And it's so beautiful because they really have chosen a diverse range of Australia. Mm. There really are those families out there and those households, not just families, you know, the couples or singles um, out there. And it's, it's so lovely to see. And everyone has embraced it. So well that it's weird to me that hasn't happened more in, you know, I mean, it slowly is, but I think Gogglebox proves that we're very open and accepting. I would personally, and I've said this to the EP many, many times, um, would love to see a Muslim family or mm-hmm. and slash and a um, Indigenous family. There is a diversity, but um, I don't think we've gone as diverse as we can go yet. One of the things that we don't see on Australian television are fat bodies. I mean, we don't really see that on TV in general or in movies in general. Um, and we don't see the bodies of old women. And we definitely don't see the bodies of old fat women. No. Um, and especially not when you also add racial diversity as well. One of the things that really resonated very strongly with audiences and you when you were on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, was the speech that you gave about um, there was a challenge where they wanted you all to collectively weigh in 
you know, to, to stand on a set of scales to see how much weight you'd lost, which, as you correctly pointed out in the show, is a really fucked up thing to do. Yeah. Um, particularly, not, not just if you're someone who, like you and like me, have had, you know, histories of eating disorders and terrible body image, but also for people watching to have that message reiterated to them that this is, that the success here is in how much weight you've lost. Yeah, let's celebrate it. And you delivered this really powerful speech about your own experiences with that and why you you refused to participate, basically. And, you know, the outpouring of love for you was so strong that once again it, it makes you question why, I mean, I'm asking rhetorically, I know why there's, I know why we don't have fat bodies on TV because we live in a fucking fat phobic mm-hmm. world. Yep. I mean, we do, but they're the ones that get picked on or ridiculed. They're the not the villains, but they can be, yeah, you know, and that that's the only reason they're there is to teach us some kind of a lesson of entertainment or, um, yeah. you know, beware of something. A cautionary tale. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, it could have been the narrative of that season could have been so different if you were a different kind of person and it could have then been framed in this really toxic, gross way that, you know, you step on the scales naturally, like being out in the jungle for that long, you know, it's the same thing that happens in shows like Survivor where they lose a lot of weight mm-hmm. um, at the end and it's kind of, or, the you know, the worst toxic show ever, The Biggest Loser, where that celebratory kind of, I've gone from being this obviously awful, terrible person who doesn't deserve love yes. and value and respect to someone who has earned all of those things through yeah. sheer hard work, blood, yeah. and tears in incredible unhealthy ways an incredibly unhealthy way and to and doing damage that could last for decades physically mm. and mentally and emotionally um the best part of that speech has been what happened a year later when I didn't even know it was Angie who actually sent me a text and she, she said girl have you noticed the way it's gone there was no way in this year, in this season. And I went, what? She goes, no, it's gone. And they didn't even mention it. So I looked it up and went, where's the what? And it's gone. No one mentioned it. The Our biggest loser went before that kind of thing. And that was actually, uh, I'd never used that as one of the catalysts for um, my, in my, not in my speech, but in my thinking. But when I thought about it afterwards and someone um, had mentioned The Biggest Loser, I thought, you know what, that's been gone, I think, I think a year or two before that. It mm. just doesn't work anymore. People, it, I think Channel 10, the last Biggest Loser they had, they had to put it on late at night to run the season out because it got no ratings. We are mm. changing as women and men or I think mostly women <laughs> Because you can see a big, bigger man on television, no problem. Mm. You know, a big gut is kind of oh, a rite of passage, really. Um, especially, if he's funny. especially what? Especially if he's funny. Yeah, exactly. You know, the sitcom, the sitcom model of the fat guy, skinny wife. Or if, especially if he's an ex sportsman. Yeah. Some men in Hollywood do get subject to, uh, on a, to a much lesser degree, they do get subject to fat shaming, you know, tabloid photographs of them between Marvel yeah. movies, whatever, look at them, you know, they've, the weight that they've piled on, blah, blah, blah. 
So the, the fat shaming definitely exists, but men who are fat or even who have less than stereotypically conventionally idealised bodies are able to succeed and progress career-wise, particularly in the media, in a way that fat women or even even just women who aren't a size six just aren't. Never have a fat woman on The Bachelor. Yeah, no. Fuck no. Absolutely not. It, it just is a, is, is a no-no. You know, not even as one of the women that get goes pretty early. They don't even let a fat fat woman um, get, get trotted in and trotted out the way they do with the others. What were you like when you were a teenager and a young, you know, sort of a young adolescent woman? I was loud, funny, same, same, with a lot less wisdom but thought I knew everything. I was mm-hmm. extremely likeable. Um, extremely depressed, but hit it all really, really well. Would cry myself to sleep every single night, but because I have bipolar and I'm medicated and treated for it now, but going through my teens, I was two, two people, like my manic up through the day and extreme manic low um, Mm -hmm. at night. So, um, yeah, living a very double life as a teenager. Like I think um, the one thing about depression that a lot of people don't seem to understand is how you can have um, a mental illness but be a really positive person, (laughs) like be a really Mm -hmm. up person. Um, And it's got absolutely nothing to do with your um, attitude towards life or your personality. Um, my personality is upbeat. It's It just is. Yeah. I always look at the silver lining and I always look at the bright side of life and all that kind of crap. But my depression is extremely dark. Um, my brother doesn't have depression, but he's a um, a pessimist. He was diagnosed by a psych- child psychologist as a pessimist at a very young age, like he, they used this amazing, um, not amazing, this interesting um, fear, like analogy kind of thing to my parents and said, look, he'll always see the negative in, in life. As this child psychologist would say, if you said to him, Matthew, we're going to Disneyland tomorrow and Disneyland's your favourite place in the world and we're going, He's, his first reaction, natural instinctual reaction would be, yeah, I bet it rains. <sighs> you know, so there's mm. this definite difference um, of men- mental illness, health um, to personality and nature. And I find mm. all that kind of really fascinating. And that is fascinating to me because of my teenage years. My teenage mm. I was a, a, a real dichotomy of fun and complete darkness. But I was a... I- Sorry, I was a um one of those kids at school that never belonged in a group. I could float because I got along with everyone. I relate to all of that very strongly, but substitute depression for anxiety. Right. Yep. And you know, particularly the last bit of I, I wasn't popular in school, but I I definitely wasn't popular enough to hang out with the cool kids. But I was sort of was kind of bullied sometimes by I was more bullied by the uncool kids than I was the cool kids because I think 
it was offensive to them in some way that I could float around. Yeah, yeah. You no, know? yeah. It's like, well, who the fuck are you? Who are you? You're just like us. You're, no You're just a than us. big loser like us. Who do you think you are? Um, but I, I think that for me, I don't know what your uh, – experience was in terms of how many schools you went to but I went to a lot of schools growing up you know we uh, my family lived in different parts of the world and so I was very used to starting a new school I I hated it I hated the anxiety of it but I came very used to going into any situation and making myself you know be a chameleon in it really split through be just inoffensive enough that you could kind of move seamlessly through all of those different spaces um inoffensive that's not how anyone would describe me these days no I know you know and I was the same I was going to say I was a chameleon because I only went to the one school but I flitted between the groups as a chameleon I I changed as I needed to adapted to each group to each individual person and to give them what I need, what I needed to get back from them um, in a in a term in a way of acceptance. But it was funny because I think your anxiety obviously came um, with so many moves and so much change. My depression was very in the nothing changed for me, nothing, everything, and I still to this day absolutely love change. Like I hate stagnant I hate routine I hate things being the same all the time and I think that comes from you know growing up in my later um childhood because in my early childhood we lived in a really metropolitan wonderful place and then we moved to the fucking back ass end of nothing and my brother excelled uh because it was sport based and I absolutely sank like just in quicksand, like just constantly being trying to, you know, get my way out of it. But that everyday mu- mundaneness of that no change, I I love change so much. But I, it's yeah. funny because, you know, you had so much change and anxiety and I had so much um, mun- mundaneness with depression. It's really interesting to me. Well, in- interestingly, I have done a lot of work on myself and my, you know, exploring my, uh, the roots of anxiety, etc. Um, I was actually chatting with a friend last week about how, oh, no, it wasn't, it, well, she's a friend as well, but she's my acupuncturist. Um, and she was saying that she thinks that I should try somatic based therapy, which is my understanding is that it's more about like a bodily response or exploring like where the anxiety is in the body and trying to work through it that way because the thing is I can sit there and analyze I've analyzed my anxiety and its roots to death and I know exactly where it comes from it's not so much that I experienced a lot of change growing up a lot of it is based in attachment theory yeah you know the youngest of three children I had an extremely depressed mother had a very absent father in lots of ways um, because he was working all the time and I just no love has ever felt secure so a lot of it in like the, the small child inside. Um, so, but I, you can know all of that stuff and go, right, but how I can't, there's no point in me going and sitting and doing talk therapy because I can explain to the psychologist exactly what's going on and you always know exactly what to say back to them. So it just becomes this sort of meaningless mm-hmm. exchange. Mm-hmm. When were you diagnosed with bipolar? Um, 17. 
mm-hmm. think um, that's when it was first really flagged. Not, I don't think they diagnosed me then. There was a very, oh, we don't want to, you know, go too hard on that kind of thing. Uh, it wasn't until um, I had massive um, manic problems episodes in my late 20s that it was became a really you know definite diagnosis and treatment plan and that kind of stuff were you scared with that diagnosis I'm just thinking that in terms of you know this would have been 30 years ago yeah it was 30 years ago yeah this year 30 years ago um the flagging no I was never scared I was always relieved to know. I just want to clarify that I only asked about being scared because I remember, I think that the conversations that we have publicly about mental health have progressed so much yeah. in the last two decades or 10 years even, where one of the things that really propelled my anxiety when I was a teenager was I was terrified of being, I was terrified of being mentally unwell. I was clearly extremely mentally unwell. And I was terrified of what that meant because the only representations I had of it came from movies where at the time, you know, we weren't even saying the word bipolar then. We were talking about manic depressives. And the representation of bipolar especially was, it it wasn't positive. It didn't paint a picture of manageability at all. And the stigma around mental illness at the time when we were both young was still, and it's huge now, but it was so much bigger yeah, no, I totally agree. But you know, that's just really reminded. I think um, I had never really thought about this, but I, it was never said as bipolar back then. It it was always told to me it was manic depression, and I actually don't think because we didn't have the internet back then that I really knew what manic depression was. I was just mm. like, okay, it, that's great. Can we fix this? Or is this, you know, is it, you know, um, treatable? But, yeah, bipolar, I didn't put bipolar and manic depression, really put it together until my manic, you know, episodes. Um, And then it's almost like I remember watching a movie where someone got told they had tumours and then they mentioned cancer and they were like, what? What do you mean? I've got cancer as well? And they're like, what do you think the tumors are? <laughs> that's Muriel's wedding. That's it. Yes, that's it. Fuck, so good. It, it's it. I think there was another movie. You know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh yeah, the was it twenty twenty or something? <laughs> the one. <laughs> it was another. We got twenty twenty on the brain. Um, yeah, cancer. <laughs> but yeah, it happened. I think something very similar in that, like just like what. A tumor is cancer. I think bipolar and manic depression for me was kind of the same thing. People would use them, and I wouldn't really um, understand exactly what they what they meant. And I certainly wasn't going and you know doing all the research I needed to do back then. I well, just not that you were drunk. And how would you? How would you no, have done? You know? That's right. We had a, a big thing of encyclopedias, Britannica, but I fucking wasn't going through that thing. That's for sure. Um, yeah. So no, I I was just happy to have the label because mm. the label meant um, I could tell people something when they said, what's mm. wrong with you? What's wrong with you? I'd be like, oh, mm. manic depression. They're like, oh, I don't know. What I mean. I'm like, me, me neither. So let's just drink. <laughs> but, um, well, actually, 
one of our questions today from Little Sisters is specifically about this. Um, and I didn't I didn't actually realise coming into this that you had bipolar. So this has worked out so fortuitously. Absolutely. Look at us, both of us looking at the silver lining, optimistic <laughs> people. Yes. Shall we get to the question? Yes, please. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Evie Jones are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women on the internet who live with mental illness and do it very fucking well. Amen. High Functioning Depressive says... So often I get told that I simply cannot be depressed because I function well, excel even. As a mother, full-time worker, law student, and woman, I absolutely struggle with the demand on my time, energy, and mental health. I recently decided to take part in a clinical trial for treatment-resistant depression, and I have had mixed reactions from people in my life. It's as if certain people don't think my depression is bad enough to warrant a treatment that is not mainstream. The trial is working. I feel what I assume to be what quote unquote, normal people feel like. I feel well for the first time in my adult and even teenage life. For the first time, I don't look at a busy road and think I could jump into that and it would be over. My question is, why is it that I feel guilty for feeling well, for having the ability to say, no, I'm not going to do X, Y, Z because it doesn't serve me and I simply don't want to. This is something new for me. I am a people pleaser at heart, but I note that this also leads to burnout and I finally have the strength with this treatment to say no. The reactions to this newfound backbone have been swift and interesting. Friends that I thought were supportive have left me behind because I'm no longer there, if that makes sense. I guess I put myself first now rather than everyone else to my detriment. Am I wrong for changing the order of things? And am I wrong for seeking something outside of the box for my depression? Evie. Well, I think she's answered her own question in there when she said um, she's a people pleaser and always has been. And oh, what was the bit where she said um, I've, she feels guilty for, you know, being Feeling well? She's just, yeah, she's just not used to it. She, it this is mm. just something that it hasn't, hasn't, she's not used to. So she, I think her the answer is right in there with the question that she's just got to get used to the new, her new normal. And mm. the guilt I think comes with um, a, a matter of things, you know, we as women are made to feel guilty about our existence all the time. But also um, I think that guilt comes from compassion and empathy, you know, as well. Mm. It's like, am I being selfish? Um and then you have to question, is selfish a bad thing? Like, you know, understanding the difference between being selfish and self-centred really helps, I think. Um, being selfish is ex so extremely important and being self-centred can be so, um, you know, destructive. Dis dis <laughs> um, I think when she um, gets better at being um who she who she is now she's going to find she's going to lose a lot of friends and that's a wonderful thing i absolutely loved um the first time i put out something quite controversial on my instagram i loved how many people i lost i was like oh this is so easy i've just culled a lot of racists here and <laughs> like i put out a thing about australia day it was years ago and um on, on the Angie and Evie 
um, page and she was like, oh, are you sure you want to do that? I was like, oh, I'm not going to do it if you don't want me to do it. And she goes, no, fuck it, do it. Go for it. And we got rid of so many, I mean, we got absolutely abused, but it was such a lovely way to find out people's true um, colours. And I think this goes for this beautiful woman as well. She needs, she now realise, can see exactly who's there for the right reasons. If they're dropping off like flies, let them go away. Mm. I think that the first thing that I want to say to her as well is congratulations congratulations for trying something new that you obviously went into with a lot of hope and optimism and that is working for you yeah to 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 experience anything that alleviates the symptoms of mental illness whether or not it's depression or whether or not it's anxiety or an amazing combination of the two Mm. to seek treatment for that as a first you know, it's the first thing that we should say is amazing because a lot of people don't do that and they don't do it for a variety of reasons. And the reasons that men don't do it are very different from the reasons that women don't do it. Speaking generally, oftentimes men don't do it because patriarchy has made them fear reaching out because that somehow makes them less of a man in patriarchy's eyes. And one of the reasons why women don't do it is because we are conditioned to not put ourselves first. And conditioned to um, assume that our problems are the last on the list, particularly if we're mothers as well. I mean, I'm assuming it's the same for people who are partnered with men. I don't know. I'm not and I don't care about men. So (laughs) that's not true. That's a joke. Um, (laughs) Kill all men, I think. (laughs) You know, I relate to the bit about, we talked about this a little bit before we went to the questions, the the idea of being a high-functioning person with or maybe that language is problematic being someone who has mental illness and has developed a a raft of strategies to be able to cover it up more effectively than maybe other people have because of temperament or probably even because of what underpins the anxiety like for me when she said that she is a people pleaser instant recognition weirdly people would not expect this of me at all but a lot of my anxiety is related to being a people pleaser to not letting people down to being there for people to giving and then then I end up I make all of these commitments because I'm too scared to say no I'm too scared to say I'm sorry I can't do that or I'm I don't have capacity for that right now or I just don't have time or I just don't want to for me when I hear the term high functioning mm. um anxious person or high functioning depressive person it, it it's like she's describing me. Yeah. So I think high functioning is good. Like you look at a, a high functioning alcoholic or drug addict. These are people who are, have problems but are getting through their life um, seemingly normal. So she's a high functioning. Um, I suppose the problem with the, just to interrupt you quickly, the problem I feel with the term high functioning is that, you know, I don't, I don't want to kind of create like a dichotomy between high functioning people. That's great. You're like getting through and you're doing it really well and low functioning, like, well, why aren't you functioning better? You know, it's because it's all so individual, isn't it? Yeah. I think high functioning is just such a, a, um, an outs. It really is an external shell that we, um, Mm. you know, step into you are, um, and it's not, 
good high functioning and low functioning to me is not necessarily um one is good and one is bad it's just the shell that you're in um and there's mm. there is so much individuality behind those in inside those shells um and sometimes what it can mean is that you're just really really good at at hiding, hiding it. it yeah that that's what i think it is that's why i don't think to say someone's a high functioning anything is is a positive because it just means you're hiding the shit that's going on and you're doing it well it was interesting the bit that she said about uh feeling guilty for feeling better as well because mm-hmm. i again relate to that too you know any of the treatments it's almost like at the age of 39 i've become so used to being accompanied everywhere I go by this sort of anxious companion who lives inside me that there is a fear of what it means to let go of it like because some of sometimes anxiety is has served me well you know the anxiety that I feel about deadlines pushing me propelling me forward to succeed and to achieve is has been beneficial to me if I get rid of that do I become an entirely different person yeah. I lose the edge that I think can can make me you know effective in what I do and also when you're so used to having that feeling of anxiety as horrible as it is uh like I, so I, I talked about this in the episode with Pandora Sykes a few weeks ago I've started taking CBD oil and I really like it it just takes the edge off of the anxiety in a way that doesn't you know alter my brain chemistry in any way um, which is fine for people who who enjoy that. That's cool, but it's just, it's just doesn't work for me. Um, so I feel really comfortable taking it, and it and I often feel really really good. And my experience of thinking about things that formally, like when I'm not on CBD oil, thinking about things that make me anxious or that you know, like these deep existential dreads that I wake up with at four a.m. Um, and that seem so impossible to surmount that uh, you know. The terrible you sort of fall into that terrible black hole of thinking I can think about those things when I've taken the CBD oil and they just don't seem as profoundly terrifying yeah it's like I feel like I can cope with that and it's a really interesting feeling because I've never really had that in my life but what I've found interesting about it as well is that there's a part of me that thinks am I allowed to feel this all the time yeah like should I should I ration the feeling oh, yeah. because I, because maybe it's not okay for me to feel okay all of the time. Yeah. Why? How, how can that be allowed? Yeah. I think that goes back to Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Like we're always like, <laughs> are we sinning? Are we, is this good feeling allowed? Like are we going to be punished for being happy? Um, also when I think you're, you, you just, there's so much weight in conditioning there's you know when you're used to functioning a certain way any kind of change to that you're going to question which is inevitably going to bring guilt about it um and that's where you know we're lucky enough to be evolved species that um can question and then get the answers to those kind of things and say um yeah it's okay to feel a bit guilty this is why you feel guilty and this is how, you know, you move past that kind of thing. Um, I think, yeah, it's just a, a human human condition that we just feel guilty for, I think, just change. Um, mm. And especially if the change seems to only be affecting us in a positive way, 
if people around you are not supportive of you becoming a happy person, oh my God, that is heartbreaking to me. Like mm. absolutely, you are just going to lose so many awful people from your life without ever realizing at the time, like before now, that you know these people were awful. <laughs> like the fuck. Oh, that pisses me off that to think that I any friend of mine would number one say, Oh, I don't know if you should be doing a clinical trial that's not mainstream. To <laughs> number two, saying, Oh, you know, you're just not there for me anymore. And and I'm I'm just gonna, you know, go slink back into the background and yeah, it's a it's a funny thing, change. I think she she'll she'll adapt well. She's gone for this clinical trial which means she really wants to be um happier and what comes with this is a lot of people not being being comfortable with that so she she'll get through it I think you know just keep working through it you'll you'll get there and and you know in these kind of um trials you end up you know on forums and meeting different people and you know, start looking at different things on the internet and a whole new world's going to open up for this person, which is going to be so exciting for her because she's going to really become so educated about so many things that um, mm. that's just something to look forward to and leave her husband if she's married. <laughs> I don't want to leave your husband, but we know that that's true. Uh, maybe you're very happy with him. I don't know. The last thing I'll just say on this before we go on to the next question is that, and this is for anyone listening who either is currently seeking treatment for mental health or would like to seek treatment for to improve their mental health, is that it's a very personal experience and only you can know what it feels like to live inside your head, however you present to the rest of the world, whether or not that's um, as someone whose mental illness is not as perceptible to people or someone who is you know, maybe a little bit more obvious about it, that doesn't really matter because that's all a sh that's all just a, a veneer. The only person who knows what's going on inside your head and the distress or happiness you may be feeling is you. And if you would like to feel better inside your head, then you do what you need to do and you find a treatment plan that works, that's whatever right. that may be, regardless of what the people in your life think about it. Well, and you know, go forth and be happy. Yeah, trust yourself. Trust yourself. <laughs> What if, asks, I was casually sleeping with a guy for a bit. When we were both seeing other people, we'd stop sleeping with each other. When things didn't work out with the other person, we'd sleep with each other again. Eventually we stopped. However, we remained friends. The friendship isn't a strong bestie bond. It's more subtle. It's always small talk. For example, how have you been? What's new? How's training going? We've never hung out one-on-one. -on -one. Contact has only been via message or when we bump into each other at the gym. In saying this, we do care for each other, which is shown by our actions and interpreting messages. The thing is, I keep wondering, what if? I sometimes conclude to myself that things won't go any further than friendship because, as stated before, our conversations are always short and sweet. It's here and there. At one point just recently, I was talking to a different guy and when I was having a catch-up talk with this friend, I told him. And he said he didn't want to know that I was talking to a guy and he said he felt weird about it. I was confused because in the early days he had no problems with information like that. I apologised. He apologised back. Things didn't work out with the guy I was talking to. So the question is, why do I keep asking myself what if with my friend? Because you're bored. 
You've got nothing on <laughs> Just well, as Maria Kondo would say, does this friendship spark joy in you? <laughs> you know what? We have not got enough time in this world to hang out with people who you have to interpret a text with and you have, as she said, just um, a surface conversation. How's, you, how's your day? What have you been up to? Boring. You know, that's mm. what you have with your barista. And you can have a lot more, <laughs> you know, but don't, no, you're not meant to be. He, If he wanted to be with you, he'd be pushing a lot harder and so would you, you know, if you both really <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing people say. If it's not a hell yes, then it's a hell no. Yeah, I think there's also some um, sometimes you can get to that hell yeah by having an amazing friendship with someone that, you know, you could be friends for 10 years with someone and then kind of go, oh, hell yeah, um, a slow burn as they call those. But um, they're, oh, they're not even having an amazing friendship. I think. I wonder, I wonder reading this, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for this little sister because I have similarly been in situations with uh, men where, you know, as I'm sure you've had this experience, as I'm sure you've had this experience too, Evie, <laughs> when you start, you start seeing a guy who starts sleeping with him, even if it's very, very casual as in this circumstance, obviously it is, and initially you're kind of like, whatever cool you know like this guy's just on the background he's just he's on the he's one of the pots on the back burners until this pot that I'm kind of cultivating on the front burner really starts to fire Mm -hmm. but the problem with the back burner pots that if they're always simmering away it's very hard to sleep with someone for an extended period of time on and off and not develop some kind of feelings, whether or not they're true feelings, whether or not they they really are authentically intimate romantic feelings, just by like by way of proximity and repetition, it's hard not to develop some kind of feeling for that person. So it seems to me like there is one of two things going on here. Either she's developed stronger feelings than she is admitting to us or is prepared to even admit to herself yeah. and that in a shift in the reason that they don't have more intimate conversations than the small talk, how have you been, is because she's gone from being kind of very casual and dismissive about it to being almost so tentative and afraid of disrupting the intimacy that they do have that she's afraid to ask real questions. She's afraid afraid to establish a real relationship with this person because she doesn't want to scare him off. I'm just suggesting that as a possibility because I've Mm. absolutely been in that situation before. The other thing could be that she is, uh, um, that that intimacy is just confusing now, that she's really not very interested in him, but, but that nor can they just be friends because they've slept together a number of times and, They've never had an honest conversation, obviously, about what's going on between them. So I guess my my advice would be, I think that your advice is great too, like don't sell yourself short, don't settle for anything less than what you want. But this little sister needs to sit down and really figure out what, what her feelings are for this person. Exactly. Does she want to be with him? Does she not want to be with him? But whatever the answer to that question is, it's time now for you to actually have a real conversation with this person. Yeah. Even if you just want to keep sleeping with him while you're waiting for someone else to come along, 
surely like you can ramp it up now to the next level where you're like, let's honestly discuss what's happening and we can still sleep together and we can still look for other partners, but let's just like open that door yeah. on this connection as well. Yeah, uh, the, both of those scenarios, the, they were the two going through my, my head as well. She She just needs to ask him. You know, and not be afraid to ask the questions. They seem like the tough questions. They're not, they're just questions. When he says something like, oh, that really weirds me out when you talk about, don't talk to me about a guy, you, you know, just a simple question. Oh, does it? Why is that? Do you have feelings what do you for me? Ooh, yeah. you like me. You know, be silly <laughs> about it, um, uh, but ask the questions. Um, I think there's a definite I'd like to know the age of this person because this is me in my 20s and me in my 40s are the two different, like, am I in my 40s just bored and going, you know, maybe is this the guy? Is this a me in my 20s kind of going, I really like him, but I want to act really cool about it and I don't want to freak him out by scaring him away and asking, you know, the questions that I really want the answers to. Um, who knows? We don't know which one she is. Um, she does though. So, she, yeah, she needs to sit down and have a really good chat and say just, Fucking ask him, ask him, have a chat with herself, I mean. This is something that I wish that I, I, I'm working on it now at the very, I wish I'd been better at it when I was in my 20s, but yeah. you know, never never too late. But this is something that I'm working on is, is that how to, why is it so scary to just lay out what we want? Why is it so scary to say, um, this situation doesn't actually work for me or you're not treating me with respect or you're you're not like the more we get to like someone I regret thinking of all the situations where I look back on how I was at the beginning of something where I was so cool and so interesting and so funny and very like hard to get not in a deliberate way just because I had a life and I was like well this person here and they're fine and you know whatever but then that shift happened that switch happened we were like oh I actually really like them and so now I'm going to become a shell of the person that I was because I'm I'm like a deer caught in the headlights yeah. of this attraction and I worry that if I move too quickly that I'm going to be run over yeah or scare them off it, it's it's yeah. such an awful and you see it in um, mainstream media all the time on movies and, and tv shows where the girl will go so where are we right now? What is this? And it's like, oh, Jesus, here we go, God, you know. We're so shamed to ask mm. those kind of like, what are you thinking? You know, how many times, how many scenes have you seen where a girl goes, what are you thinking? And a guy goes, oh, Jesus, I was just thinking yeah. about football. What's with you and all the que- You Why do you complicate everything? You know, we get yeah. so shamed. Hmm? It's that yeah, women are framed as being so intense. You're right. We get so strong for wanting to have any kind of depth. Yes. yes. And other girls will say to girls, "Be cool, God. Don't yeah. be a nag. Don't be a psycho. Don't be a fatal attraction." Yeah. Don't be a bunny boiler. Exactly. How dare you ask those kind of questions of a man? Yeah. Yeah. And the yeah the skittishness. You know the. I, I think as well that it all kind of ties back into this um the way that firstly women are presented with and sold this bullshit uh projection for their life where they need to find a man and settle down and have babies get married definitely get married uh 
and this is the path to happiness. This yeah. is what will make us happy. This was this is what will make our lives worthwhile. Yeah. And this is the ultimate goal that we must strive for. Yes. And you will live happily ever ever after. That's yeah, that's what we're presented with. Live happy happily ever after. As fake and false as that is. Yeah. And then the great kind of like bait and switch is we're told to do that and then everything we do that might lead to establishing a connection with someone is framed as um, crazy, yep. intense, yep. like why are you asking me all these questions? Stop trying to trap me. Stop trying to get me under the thumb. Yep. She's trying to land her man. Why do you want to know what I'm thinking? Yep. Can't we just make casually? So, of course, like it's just another strategy to – make women feel completely destabilised in the world that we live in so that we never actually assert our own needs or wants. Yeah, it's quite clever, really, because it's worked. It's yeah. worked really, really fucking well. The worst thing that can happen is that they say, oh, I don't want that. And so we have to deal with the heartbreak of that and then we move on to someone who maybe can provide us for a short or a long-term time with the things that will make us happy and that will value and respect us as humans. But the alternative that too many of us, myself included, always reach for is, well, I won't tell him what I want because then I, I just fear that he'll run away. So I will just deal with like a scrap of what yeah. I want. I'll, I'll endure the, the crumbs at the foot of the table because they taste pretty good. Yeah, and that's all I deserve. And we're conditioned from such a young, young age that you don't deserve more. I mean, the it's her, um, heartbreaking how many times I see someone um, on a comment say, oh, God, what what makes a woman do that? And how often I just want to re reply because she has no self-worth because she's never, ever been told she's worthy. You know, all her mm. life she's been, you know, and, and it's not even in an abusive um, primary kind of focused way. It's this subliminal, um, mm. you're not worth enough you're not enough to be worth you know but um and then we get to this point where it hits you in your about your early 30s really where you start questioning it and then you start going oh fuck and you have to re-educate reprogram do all this work that so many of us have done or are doing are still doing or will be doing till the day we die it's it's really quite sad how um much work we do Mm. either way work to get them work to understand not getting them work to be okay with being by ourselves yeah yeah all of it and just the deep-seated conditioning of the patriarch that's you know the world we live in mm. so yeah um just give up on men completely i say thank you and thanks for coming to my ted talk That music is too good. Okay, last question for the hour. I have a question about pubic hair. As someone who grew up with parents who very openly discussed sex, bodies and puberty, I was always aware of their views that pubes are normal and, if anything, they struggled to understand the appeal of remo removing pubic hair. Moving into adolescence and watching porn and realising that removing pubes was really common in my age group, I had issues with reconciling this particular issue. 
We know that it is totally wrong and inappropriate to have sex with children, and yet in order to be fuckable in the eyes of many men, especially those who do not challenge stringent gender ideals, women need to look childlike, big eyes, small bodies, and hairless. Now at 17, I choose to grow my pubes out most of the time, as well as my armpits, shaving my legs the most out of any body part. And I like having this kind of choice. The boy that I am dating actually encouraged me to stop shaving body hair all of the time, given that we both find that it looks sexier to have hair and that really just being comfortable in your own skin is the most attractive physical quality in a person. However, I still ponder over how body hair on women is entwined with politics and how choosing not to remove it still has connotations of dirtiness and quote-unquote feminazi crap. Mm. Please discuss. This is a great one for me personally. I have body hair and find the world so weird that, you know, parts of it refuse to allow women (laughs) socially accepting uh, refuses to allow women to have body hair and that somehow you're a dirty feminist. Um, I argue with my girlfriends all the time about it like that because it's it's a source of um, humour for my friends. They see my hairy legs and go, oh, Look, it's it's my hair. Why is that funny? Um, yeah. Armpit hair, pubes especially. God, I absolutely can't stand getting rid of my pubes. Just on a health level, the ingrowns, the itch, the way the urine sprays everywhere. Really interestingly, the last guy I was seeing was a lot younger than me and had grown up only on the new porn. So for him, it was a deal breaker. So I um, got rid of him by not shaving. It was just this lovely little um, protest that I did without having to say anything. It was just like, mm. there you go. And he's like, oh, and I was like, yeah, you better go. <laughs> if you can't deal with that, then fuck off. Um, but if you want to shave your hair, shave your hair. Because sometimes I do. I just, just to see what it looks like or, you know, how it feels to have a really deep clean of my skin, like get rid of hairs on my arms everywhere, just and really give myself a good exfoliating you know, each to their own. As far as the porn goes, yeah, it's there's a really disturbing aspect of no hair um, on women that do um, does make it look like you want to have sex with a, a child. Um, but I think it, it's it's more than that. It's it's this clean, fresh look that it's a trend. You know, my friend honestly argued with me and said the bush will never come back I said oh it'll come back it'll come back and she goes no never like everyone's lasering now and I'm like no it'll come back this was probably 15 years ago and the bush is coming back now like you look at certain porn and it's back the reason that the bush is coming back is not just because people are becoming increasingly less interested in lasering and pluck, lasering and plucking and waxing and stuff but this is exactly how patriarchal beauty standards work is that they set a goal and people move towards that goal yeah and then all of a sudden they shift the goalposts so it, it makes total sense of course that 20 years ago when sex in the city was first kind of really popularized in pop culture the brazilian um that that became this this new norm that everyone would kind of yeah make their 
vaginas look like plucked chickens. I should say vulvas. Everyone would make their vulvas look like plucked chickens. And, of course, now that that's happened and people have established that, they're like, that's gross. We want some hair back on those bushes, please, ladies. Thank you, thank you. Yep, not you. Um, Now, I have to say that I dispute the – I think it's kind of – I think it's simplistic to suggest, and I hear this argument from so many people, but I think it's simplistic to suggest that hairless pussies are pedophilic yeah, in I, desire. I agree. I agree. I, yeah, I mean, I, do, I actually don't think because, you know, if you're also looking at the porn model, a lot of those women have really big boobs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not so much about making women seem childlike. It's about making them seem inhuman. Yeah, it's about exactly. completely sanitizing every part of a woman's body. So, so you know, boobs have to be really pneumatic in size, and pussies have to be totally hairless. Well, who do they look exactly like? The Barbie doll. The Barbie doll never had pubic hair, but always had big tits. I think it's about it's a dis, it's a disgust for the real visceral nature of bodies. Yep. You know, and part of part of what where it comes from, or part of how it maintains its primacy, is that men in particular are really encouraged to be disconnected from their sexual beings, yeah. from their from themselves as sexual beings. Which is not to say that they're discouraged from having sex. Of course, they're discouraged. Of course, they're encouraged to go out and fuck everything that moves and to like be a red blooded Aussie man. You know, yeah. speaking particularly in an Australian context. But that's very different to having an actual connection with your sexual desire and your sexual self because to have a connection means to, like to, you you cannot look at the body as a site of disgust if you, in the way that patriarchy looks at women's bodies as places of disgust if you are truly connected to your own desire. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I've got girlfriends who have husbands and they're like, oh, you know, I feel disgusting when I've got hairy legs and everything and he still wants to have sex with me. I'm like, what does he say? And they're like, he's like, I love every single inch of you. Like, I couldn't give a shit how hairy you are or anything. I want to have sex with you. You've turned me on. I don't care about the smell that you think is awful or the hair that you think is awful. But it's funny how many of those same friends will say to me, oh, when I want sex, he knows because I've shaved my legs. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, just, oh, it's, God, we've got such a long way to go. You know, I remember going into my dad's porn stash, which would you would call a small mountain. He actually had a, a <laughs> in the garage a cupboard, one of those old wooden, you know, that really smelly cupboards, that smell of wood and paper. Oh, God, that smell was is, is just etched in my brain. But the entire small cupboard, it was like a small boy um, mm. filled with Playboys, Playboys mm. and Penthouse. So he bought oh, them ev- every month. He bought them. And I used to just rifle through them because I just found them so interesting and beautiful and there were always women with real bodies like not not that I had anything to compare it to but that's my memory of a really beautiful sexual woman and I remember even knowing the difference between penthouse and playboy 
you know, yeah. the the opening of the vulva in Penthouse to the Playboy, which was just always, you know, over the shoulder and a bit of bush. You know, there's such yeah. the difference of they used to take these amazingly beautiful photographs of women. Um, and then we evolved to really smutty <laughs> porn that freaks me out completely. And I have girlfriends who now have teenage boys and have to have these really interesting conversations of how that what they're watching is not normal at all. It's not it's not real. It's fantasy. It's not, it's and it's a very specific kind of fantasy. And it's disturbing. And she um one of my friends, she has two teenage boys, but she works um in an RSL. So she works with younger um adults. And there was an 18-year-old girl she worked with who was telling her she hooked up with a guy at the pub and he did the sexy choke on her. And she, and my friend said, wait, 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 hang on, what? The what? The sexy choke. And she goes, you know, when they choke you to make you come? And she goes, what? She goes, yeah, oh, the point, you know. Um, and she goes, did you want him to do that? And she goes, no, I, I really didn't like it because I couldn't breathe. And she said, did you say anything to him? And he, she said, I did. I said, um, do you like doing that to me? Like, is that turning you on? And he said, oh, no, no, not at all. But that's what girls like, isn't it? That's what the porn, you know, there's so many, so much fucked up shit now going on that, you know, this is the same girl that said that she has to have a completely naked body to be hot or desired by said guy. I had I had a boyfriend years ago that I used to shave for all the time without ever asking him. One day when I thought he was cheating on me, I went through his phone and I found nothing, you know, incriminating. <laughs> but what I did find was his porn history and it was literally hairy pussy. That's what he was Googling. And I was like, oh, I wish you told me because I really fucking hate shaving. Isn't it interesting, Clem, how much we need to communicate and we don't communicate? That would have been so easily solved by you two and also by people doing this in general, sitting down and saying, what do you like? Yeah. What turns you on? This is why one of the things that I say to young women in particular now, and actually for all women, I think, should do this if you are planning on or would like to to date cis men is to ask them what kind of porn do you watch let's talk about the porn that you watch let's talk about the the things that you've learned from porn it's great that you make that point about the the guy saying I don't really like choking you I just that's what I've seen so I thought that that's what you like because I hear a lot of stories about women being choked uh by men when they didn't consent to being choked yeah and, and a lot of them are that those men enjoy choking them and enjoy hurting them. Yes. But some of the ones I've heard have been from, you know, women who say that they've when they've called the guy out on it, they've had a similar response. Oh, I just thought that that's what yeah. sex was. Yeah. And not just from the porn they're watching, from their mates yeah. saying, oh, and I choked it, she fucking loved it. Yeah. Or, you know, well, we've it's the second time we've had sex, so, of course, now I'm going to yeah. fuck her up the ass. Yes. You know? And yes. I'm not going to do it properly. I'm not going to do it, you know, with any kind of care or preparation because porn definitely doesn't show me that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just the the lack of communication, and again, comes back to that thing of 
being connected to your desires versus performing sex, you know. You can have this you can fuck a thousand people and have a completely non-intimate experience of what that sex should feel like. Or you could have sex with one person and it could be really, really fucking good because you talk, you think about what pleasure is for both of you and you explore that together. Yeah. Yeah. God, fuck yeah. Is it, which, um, which I'd say is well, this, this young woman as well, I'd say that it's great that uh, I'm a little red flaggy about how your boyfriend, her boyfriend told her to stop shaving because mm. he likes it. Mm. I mean, that's fine. Like if you also like it, that's great. Yes. But don't don't do things just because yeah. men like it. Don't let them talk you into doing things you don't necessarily want to do because they find it sexy. I mean, sometimes we do those things, but just don't let that be like the positive feminist trait that, well, he really likes body hair, so I grew it out. Like do yeah. it for you. Yeah. Jave, don't whatever it is, whatever it might be, make sure that you're the one who is in control of that decision. Yes. But I think it's it does seem great that they have a means of talking to each other about what they like, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. 17. Fucking new generation, go. Yeah. Change our world, please. Grow your hair. Don't grow your hair. Yeah, the bush will want. be back. Then the bush will go again. It's all cyclical. <laughs> also... You know, can I just point out the old, the the really sad thing about the old laser? This is yeah. happening to my friends. You know how it only works on the dark hairs? Yeah. The greys come through anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so my friends who are in their late 40s, early 50s have just got grey hairs coming through that have absolutely mortified them. <laughs> Jen Kirkman has a good spot on that where, you know, the comedian Jen Kirkman where she talks about her grey pubes coming through and, and it being like, you know, she was like white pubes would be fine, that's silky, I'd stroke that like a beard and give out vi- advice, you know, just stroke my pubic hair and just tell people what to do with their lives. But grey hairs, mm-hmm. that's like barbed wire. That is a sign that says do not enter. That is the house on the street that the kids don't go trick-or-treating to. <laughs> scary scary witch house yeah oh fuck we can't win either way no do what makes you feel good and just be assured that whatever makes you feel good patriarchy will hate anyway but one day it will be back You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. If you do like the show, then please consider rating and reviewing it because it's really nice to have the feedback and it also helps to put the show into the paths of other listeners. If you enjoy the hotline, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledge of more than $10 per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the hotline only available for download to subscribers. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week has been the fabulous, fantastic, very, very funny Evie Jones. And Evie, you are doing your own podcast currently as well, Chick Story. 
Tell me quickly about that and uh, how people can listen. It's on iTunes and Spotify. Um, it's called Chick Story, as in Chicks in History. And it's basically my friend Annie Potatoes and I talking every week about um, a woman that isn't in the history books because we realised, I realised very young, that um, all the history books were written by men about men. Um, and I always wondered where the women were in these books. So um, when I started looking, I found it really, really difficult to find but there is a lot of information out there a lot of work which is you know not really me I'm not a worker but I'll do the work for this because it's it's fascinating next we're finishing this season soon we're up to I think only about 20 episodes for this year next year we're going to come back with a second season and we're going to start having guests on I would like to formally invite you Clementine Ford to be one of our chickstorians that comes on and tells us your own interesting story about a chick in history, someone that you knew or don't or didn't. Um, and, yeah, we're going to have different people on every week telling us something. Yeah, I would be absolutely thrilled to come and be a chickstorian. Uh, thank you very much for asking me and I'll hold you to that invitation too. I'll hold you. I'm holding you now. Evie, thank you so much for being on the show. I love you. I think you're great and funny and I'm really glad that you're in the world. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.